All right, your Bibles and find your way to Mark chapter 6. I'll do the same thing, Mark chapter 6. We, we did the first section last week, which was just six verses. And uh, if, I can, if I can pull this off today, we're going to get through verse 32. So we're going to go from 7 to 32, which I know is a, a little bit longer than we normally take. But our passage today will end with this statement in Mark 6.30, or towards the end. Here's what, uh, here's what the passage says in, in verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. Now what's interesting about that, this is only the second time in Mark's gospel that the disciples are called the apostles. So I want you to make note of that. Anybody know what the word apostle means? Anybody? We have a, what is it? Louder, your pastor's deaf. Follow, close, it's pretty close. That's what a disciple is, someone who is under training. But apostle has a little bit of a different nuance to it. We have another word in, in the English language. It's a political word, and it's ambassador. What does a president do with the ambassador? Takes the ambassador, and he commissions them to go to another country to represent the United States of America. So literally, write this down somewhere. It's not in your outline. But the apostle means sent one, a sent one. Now, there's, <laughs> there's two kinds of apostles. Um, well, I'm getting ahead of myself here for a second. It literally means sent one. Then we look at, we've already seen this word in Mark 3, 13 to 15. And he went up on a mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him and he appointed 12, and then parenthesis, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and that here it is, that he might send them out. That's what the word apostle means to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now that's back in chapter 3. But before the apostles can be apostles, they had to be disciples. And that goes back to what Dale said. <laughs> the worst thing you can do is send somebody who doesn't have the training to get the job done. Has that ever happened to you? All right? Someone, someone sent to you to fix something and they have no idea how to do it. That's what's called an exercise in frustration. <laughs> For example, if your car breaks down on the highway, I am not the guy you want to call. I, I promise you. Um, un unless you need a, a, a cold drink, I can bring you that. But that's about all I'm good for if your car breaks down on the highway. Someone who is a sent one doesn't become an apostle, a sent one, until they're trained. Right? And so in chapter 3, Jesus says, I'm marking you guys out to eventually be my sent ones. But before that, you need to be a disciple. You need to be a follower. You need to learn from me. So with that in mind, we see that Jesus' plan here is to transform them into apostles, which is fishers of men. Which he starts in the very beginning chapter talking about that, right? Follow me and I will make you what? Fishers of men. What is that? That's an apostle. That's someone who is sent out to do what Jesus does. So in this next section, this is interesting. I want you to follow the flow of this, of Mark's historical account. We're going to see Jesus kind of hit the pause button, and he is going to, for the next little bit of his ministry, he's going to focus more on his men than on the masses. Up to now, he's focused on his personal ministry to the masses. Not that he wanted a bunch of people. They just came, and it was because of the miracles. But now Jesus is going to kind of go inward. He's going to focus very specifically. He's two years into his ministry, and if you know a little bit of Bible history, he's only going to have, he's only got a year left. He's got one year left before the cross, a tomb, and an ascension. You following that? And in this last year, his major focus is going to be on his men. Why? Because he's going away. And they're going to handle the kingdom expansion that's coming. That Y'all get that this morning? I don't want you to miss it. They were going to be the sent ones. Apostles. And that's a little a apostle. 
Um, that's the action of an apostle, a sent one. And in that sense, you and I are apostles as well, right? We are sent, little a apostle. But this too, this sending out this first time was also a training so that eventually they might become capital A apostle, which is an office. So you got little a apostle, which is an action. It's just being sent. And then big A apostle, which is an office. That's a position of authority that's given in order to continue kingdom expansion, if that makes sense. Um, and here's what's odd, and we're going to see it this morning when we, when we jump into text here in, in, in about 30 seconds. And it's this, this account of, in the middle of this historical account of Jesus sending the disciples out and saying, okay, you watch me do it. We've done it together. Now you go do it on your own. Right? This first mission adventure that these guys are going to take, a lot of excitement. You, you know, they're in Nazareth. Nazareth was a bust, his hometown. And so now he gets the guys together and says, look, now we're going to expand this ministry. We're, we're going we're to ex, have exponential growth. And you're going to go out and here's, you're going to preach the same message I preached. Right? And that's the kingdom gospel, uh, which is repent, believe, and follow the king. Right? You're going to take that message out, and you're going to verify that message with miracles. However, it's kind of strange, right sandwiched in the middle of this exciting first foray into ministry for these apostles, is the historical account of what appears like the unjust execution of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. Now, why is that? Why would Mark, through Peter, choose to put this account right here in the middle of it? There's a really good reason for it. And, and, I, and I think it's this. There's a cost. There is a cost to being an apostle, a sent one. Right? Kingdom expansion means another kingdom's defeat. And no kingdom gives up without a fight. Amen? There's a price to pay. And by the way, every one of these men would eventually pay that price. And in this passage, we're going to consider uh, what it's like to serve Jesus, which is something he intends all of us to do. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, when Jesus ascended, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, which is the building up of the body of Christ. So, so that is our job. We get to serve the greatest king in the most wonderful kingdom. And we are, we are meant, God intends you and I to be a great gift to our community, to our family. And in this passage this morning, we're going to learn exactly how to be that sent one to our families, to our communities, and to our world. So with that in mind, I want you to pick it up in verse number 7. And right now we're just going to read through verse number 13. So he leaves Nazareth in verse 6. Can't do much there. He's amazed at their unbelief. So he goes out into the small villages around and starts teaching. But look what happens in verse 7. And he called the twelve to himself, and he began to send them out. Notice this, two by two. And he gave them power over unclean spirits. And he commanded them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no copper in their money belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. In other words, don't worry about packing, just go. Now that seems a little strange for those of you that are uh, um, type A people who like to have all your T's crossed and your I's dotted. Verse 10. Also he said to them, in whatever place you enter a house, stay there until you depart from that place. And whoever will not receive you nor hear you, when you depart from there, shake off the dust under your feet as a testimony against them. And assuredly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So they went out and preached that people should repent. See, that is the same message that they had heard Jesus preach. Now, I think, I think what happens to us here is we, we look at the disciples, and I've, I'm guilty of it too, and I've, I'm guilty of it even what I've, what I've preached and taught, is that the disciples were just a bunch of bumbling guys that never got it right. 
Uh, I heard one preacher this week made me laugh. He said, he said, if I was Jesus, I would have fired the disciples and started over with the ladies because <laughs> they, they seem to be the only ones that get it. But the disciples weren't just a bumbling band of, of, of fools. They weren't completely clueless. Here's why. For two years, Jesus had trained them. They've been walking. They listen, they, listen, they knew Jesus' sermons by heart. They watched very carefully what Jesus did, what he said, and how he communicated the kingdom gospel. They didn't know everything, but they knew the kingdom gospel, and they knew it well. And then Jesus gives them this authority, this power. As they are preaching, repent, believe, and follow the king. And he sends them out two by two, teaching the importance of serving him with other people. Boy, that's important, isn't it? You can only do so much by yourself. You can do a lot more with a partner. <laughs> Amen? We need, we need to make sure we're serving God together. He sends them out in twos. And it's so it's such an important lesson there. Now, Mark says that Jesus deposited authority into his men. That's an important development. So he gives them authority, which tells you what? They didn't have that to start with, right? All authority comes from who? From God. <clears throat> and so Jesus takes his authority and he grants it to them. And as these men rode the authority and the ability of Jesus, they proclaimed repentance. Repent for the kingdom of God is here. And that was their message. And that was the primary thing they were going to do. And then they were able to cast out demons and heal many who were sick. Remember, the miracles always are secondary to the message, which is primary. It's all about the gospel. The miracles were there to validate the truth of what these men said, that it's not just Jesus now. Jesus is exponentially multiplying his influence by groups of two, so six men going in different directions. And it's interesting, up to this point, Jesus is trying to manage his ministry and keep it small, and now he gives power to his, his apostles and sends them out and the ministry exponentially expands. Oh, I guess I didn't have my... <laughs> just hit that. I guess they obviously don't know me that well to know what I'd be doing right now on a Sunday morning. All right, so here's the question. I always want to make this practical. Um, when you're on mission with King Jesus... When you are, and he calls every one of us to do that, to go on mission with him, here's what you're going to end up, here's what you're going to do. And number one is this, you're going to see yourself as an extension of King Jesus. Verses 7 through 13. You're going to see yourself as nothing but an extension of Jesus. Think about it. Jesus had reproduced his ministry. He reproduced himself. In these, in these six teams, right? They had seen him. He had trained them. And, they, and, and now the gospel, instead of going one place through Jesus, went to six places through his men. You see it? Jesus had done the work, and now he was having his, king, his uh, kingdom influence and expansion was actually expanding. And we are the church. We are an extension of King Jesus. So the question is, how are, we doing? how are we doing with that? I mean, really, do you, is it your constant thinking that you are an extension of Jesus to your surroundings? Is, it, is, that, what you, is that what you think? Is that your mindset? Is that where your, what your mind is set on as you get up in the morning? To, I, I, I'm getting out of this bed and I am an extension of Jesus to my family. I'm an extension of Jesus at work. I'm an extension of Jesus in my leisure time. So how are we doing? And here's a practical question about that. How is Lake Wildwood as a community better because we're, we are the living extension of King Jesus right here? Is it better because we're here? If we left or ceased to be would anybody notice? We got to start seeing ourselves as the physical presence of Jesus starting at home. <laughs> I had a wise mentor of mine tell me one time, he said, son, 
If your Christianity isn't working at home, please don't export it. Right? It starts at home with how we're treating each other. Are we loving with no strings attached? He said, well, what does that look like? How can I actually, I mean, okay, so I'm supposed to be the physical representation of Jesus in my community, in my, in my life, in my home, at work, in my, what does that actually look like? Let me give you some practical, I'm going to do this real fast. Here's the first one. Ask people how they're doing and mean it. Ask people how they're doing and mean it. Now, that's something that we tend to say, and it's what's called a cultural colloquialism. We don't really mean it. And there used to be a lady in this church, and some of you that have been here a while, and a long time will remember her, and, and memory shaking her head, she knows who I'm talking about because she said it to all of us. Her name was Leontine Upton. Mike remembers Leontine, Winnie. And, and Leontine, when I first came here, we called, she was the church mom. And uh, I'll never forget, just a colloquialism, hey, how you doing? The first time I said that to Miss Leontine, she responded with a question, and that question was, do you really want to know? In other words, are you, are you just saying that as a greeting, or do you really want to know how I'm doing? And that kind of set me back on my heels, and I realized, I really do want to know how you're doing. How are you doing? Just think about that. That is a way to be an extension of Jesus to people, is to ask them and mean it, hey, how are you doing really? How are you? When's the last time somebody asked you that and meant it? You, you might not even be able to come up with a time. Just that little thing right there is a way you can be an extension of Jesus. And then here's what's going to happen when you ask people that question. Get ready, because you're going to hear some things. And what you're going to hear is brokenness. Because we live in a broken world, don't we? The kingdom of darkness only knows how to destroy. Y'all realize that? But here's the beauty. The kingdom of light is a kingdom of healing and hope. God, God puts back together what the enemy has destroyed. Mike, one of your favorite verses that became one of mine because of you. Um, God will restore the years the locusts have eaten. And, and he will, won't he? So, so listen for brokenness. But here's what I want you to here's, here's another practical, right? Don't just hear the broken. How are you really doing? Well, I got to tell you the truth, man. I'm struggling. You know, uh, here's what's going on. And they share some piece of brokenness in their life. Here's what you do. This is really easy. And it rhymes. You ready? Write it down. Pray right away. Pray right away. And here's what not to do. Stop telling people, I'll pray for you. Just, just quit. And instead, what? Just pray for people. Like, right then. Right then. And, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, I don't know if you're like me. I have really good intentions. Right? If you tell someone, I'm going to pray for you, you've got a really good intention, I'm going to do that. But I don't know. I have found out that if I don't do that right then, there's a chance I might not do it at all. And the other thing is, those people need to hear you pray for them. They need to hear you reach out to God himself with their name on your lips. That's how we're introducing them to the kingdom. And helping them realize maybe what kingdom they're living in versus the one that we're living in. Pray right away. Here's the next one. Be, a, be the conduit for God's peace. What's that mean? You just be the instrument of God's peace. Now, you say, well, how do I do that? Well, let me, can I give you the reverse of that? We all know how to be an instrument of stress and strife, don't we? That comes natural. Thomas, do you have to teach your children to, to, to be mean to each other? Oh, why? That comes what? Natural. And I hate to hurt your feelings, but that's because of you. The Bible says it really teaches that the children get their sin nature through their dad. Um, and that's why Jesus didn't have one, because his father was the father. Does that make sense? So, Thomas, it's your fault. <laughs> but you don't have to teach your kids to be naughty and to be instruments of strife. That comes naturally because they need to be remade new. You be an instrument of God's peace. You say, you know what? I'm not going to make this situation worse. I'm here to be an extension of Jesus. And listen, everywhere Jesus left was better than when he got there. Amen? Can I ask you a question this morning? I'm more preaching to me than you, so you should know that. Can I ask you a question this morning? 
Is every place you leave better because you've been there? Or are you leaving disaster in your wake? Yeah. I, have a, I tell my kids at school on Monday mornings, we, we, we meet in this, in this beautiful church building. And I say, look, we've got to leave this place better than we found it. We just really do. They should, that pastor should never come in here after we're gone and say, oh, man, look at all the work i got to do. He ought to come in these buildings and inspect the classrooms we've been in and say, man, that ain't a thing for me to do. It actually looks better than when these kids got here. Are we doing that in our everyday life? Are we doing that with each other? I love the prayer of St. Francis Assisi. They've turned it into a beautiful song. Maybe you've heard it. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O oh, divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Now, I want to ask you a question. This is so important. When I say that today, when you pray that today, is God showing, the Holy Spirit showing you where you have been an instrument of His peace this week? Or is He showing you where you have not? Where you have left brokenness as you left and not His peace? Here's another thought. It kind of goes along with that. Look for opportunities to express the hope you have in Christ. Ask people, how you doing and mean it. When you hear brokenness, pray for them right away. And seek to be an instrument of God's peace. A path of God's. I'm going to bring peace into this situation. And then look for opportunities to say, hey, let me, let me tell you why this is the way that I am. Because I know the end of my story. Now, I don't have all the details, but here's what I do know. I've got a king who I love and serve, who loves and serves me. Because of what he did for me on a cross and an empty tomb, I'm going to be in God's kingdom forever and ever. So nothing that happens here can destroy that peace and that hope in me. And then attached to that, here's the next part is, you've got to live a holy life. You've got to be a little bit different than the world around you. Right? Think about it. When your life hits a brick wall, do you call the drunk down the street for help? No. Who do you generally reach out to? The most holy person you know. Am I, am I right or wrong? Don't you? Like when, 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 when it's bad, when life has just knocked you down, you think of the... Two or three people that you know say, that's a holy man or that's a holy woman of God and I need to reach out to them because I need some help. Be that person. Listen, when I say that, people in this room ought to be thinking of you. And if they're not, we're dropping the ball there. So you can't express your hope in Christ if you're not living holy or different. And then the last one's so good. Just, just trust God. Rely on the Father. He's got this. Jesus didn't send them guys out and say, good luck. <laughs> Hope it goes well for you. No. What did he do? He gave them power and authority. And he told them exactly how to pull it off. Right? Rely on him. Trust God. So when you're serving Jesus, here's the reality. We're going we're gonna to get everything we need for that mission. I had a brother, pastor, young guy, hit me up the other day and said, Pastor, just pray. I really want to go on this mission trip. There, you know, but there's no finances for it, and it's an expensive one. It's around the world. And I don't know how it's going to work. I said, brother, you listen to me. Where, where God guides, he provides. His provision is his guidance. Now, he's put that on your heart. Now, trust him to either open or close that door. And it might just be a seasonal thing. It might not be now. It might be later. It might be now. Just trust. Rely on God. 
God's put that in your heart. Walk in that direction until you hit a door. And when you hit that door, say, Lord, is that door closed for now or for good? Either way, what should I do now? And, and all things rely on him. Trust God. What does he say in Matthew 6, 33? But seek you, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's the condition. And then what's the promise attached to that condition? When you do your part and all these things will be added to you. What are you seeking? You see, we got to seek first as a primary importance God's kingdom and his expansion in us. And then the stuff gets added. Does that make sense today? I hope so. Number two, and this is where it gets strange, I think. Interesting strange. You got to know this, that in Christ's kingdom, winning looks weird. In Christ's kingdom, winning can look really weird. <laughs> How many of you know that's true? So right in the middle of this really amazing start, you're going to have all this power, um, and, and you're going to go out and you're going to cast out demons, you're going to anoint people with oil who are sick, and they're going to be healed. Fantastic. Verse 10, 14. Now King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known, and he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Now who's the him there? Jesus. Herod hears of all these works that Jesus is doing. But remember, Jesus is doing very specific work in specific areas, mostly in the north of Galilee. It's pretty far away from Herod. But what did he just do? He just sent who out? His disciples, and times six, he multiplies his impact. And listen, don't miss it. Herod, oh, this is good. Herod doesn't hear about Jesus' power until his disciples get that power and start being extensions of Jesus. Do you see that? So Herod hears about these disciples, what they're doing in Jesus' name, and he thinks, oh, no. John the Baptist, who I had executed, he must have come back to life. He must have resurrected. Because these powers are at work in him. Others said it's Elijah, speaking of Jesus, and others said it is the prophet or like one of the prophets. Possibly referring to Enoch. Because those two guys never tasted human death. They were taken. Verse 16. But when Herod heard... Um, he said, nope, this is John whom I beheaded, for he has been raised from the dead. Now Herod's scared. So as the disciples went about his extension of Jesus, notice who got the credit. It wasn't the disciples, it was who? It was Jesus. Jesus got the credit for what they were doing because he was doing it in their power. And by the way, there's another word there. When, you're, when you are operating in the kingdom power of Jesus, guess who doesn't get the credit? You. Guess who does get the credit? Jesus. Does that make sense? That's a good way to, to test uh, where you are in that. So they come to all these different conclusions. It's John the Baptist. It's Elijah. Another one of the prophets. And we're going we're gonna to unwrap that more when we get to Mark 8. But Herod thinks it's John because he feels guilty. Um, and then Mark tells us this account of John's death in verses 17 through 20. And it's a story about a guy named Herod Antipas, and he's the second of four rulers who have this name Herod in the New Testament. Now, here's the reality. I'm not going to lie to you. There is not enough time to talk to you about all these Herods and how they're connected. But I will tell you this, try to make it clear as I can. This Herod is a son of Herod the Great. And you know Herod the Great. He's the ruler who ordered the murder of all the babies, boys in Bethlehem to and under. Nice guy, right? Well, his son's not much better. Now, Herod the Great had ten wives. That's why he's not called Herod the Wise. <laughs> and because his descendants were often involved in incestuous relationships, their family tree is complicated and has very few branches. So listen to this one scholar try to explain the Herod's to you, and this will just tell you how crazy it is. Herod the Great had ten wives. Herod Antipas, the being the son of the fourth wife, Malthrace. Um, Herodias was a daughter of Aristobulus, Antipas, Antipas's half-brother, 
who was murdered by his father, Herod. By the way, Herod had a penchant to great. He, he, had, he had a penchant for murdering his sons. Josephus, the historian, said, you're safer to be Herod's sow than his son because he constantly murdered his sons because he was scared they were going to take his throne, which makes you understand a little bit of this crazy man why he murders all these baby boys. Herodias was thus a granddaughter of Herod the Great through his second wife, uh, Mariamne the first, and hence a niece of Herod Antipas. If that's not convoluted, I don't know what is. But this is, this is the second Herod, the son of Herod the Great. Uh, but because of the Herod of this story, he had enticed his brother's wife and he stole Herodias and he stole her away from uh, his own brother. So John the Baptist had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. He's speaking truth to power. And guess what the power thought of that? Not so much. Finally, Herod had a belly full of it. It was really, it was, it was really Herodias who had a belly full of it. His, his stolen wife, uh, which was living with him illegally in the eyes of God, and they had him arrested, and he's in prison. And Herod wanted to keep him alive, but we know that Herodias wanted him dead. So look at, look at verse 14. Now King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known. And he said, it's John the Baptist risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it's Elijah. Others, the prophet, or one like the prophets. But when Herod heard it, he said, this is John whom I beheaded, for he is risen from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John, bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, there it is, for the same, for he had married her, because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Bold man. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard these things, he heard him he did, that he did many things and heard him gladly. Verse uh, 21. Now we see what's going to happen. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. Not uncommon. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, ask me whatever you want and I'll give it to you. He swore to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to the half of my kingdom. Now he's speaking in hyperbole there. Right, but what he's because really he didn't have a kingdom to give. He he was working for Rome. He had no he didn't have authority to give her the kingdom. It's a first century way of saying whatever you want, within reason I'll give it to you. So she went out and said to her mother, "Well, what do you want me to ask for?" And she said, "How about the head of John the Baptist?" Nice, nice lady, right? And immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, "I want you to give me the head." At, one, uh, at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Well, that, by the way, that'll put an end to a good party. Now look at verse 26. And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of the one who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in a prison. Brought out his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. And when his, John's disciples, heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Weird. Why this historical account of John's execution in the middle of this exciting account of the disciples' first missions trip. Mark intends this to be a shock to the system. We're going from a high to a low. While the 12 are out there winning, John takes the loss. Or did he? It's an upside-down kingdom that they're ushering in. And one of the things we learn, the values in this kingdom is the opposite of the kingdom of darkness. In the kingdom of light, listen to me, to die is gain. To die is gain. 
And by the way, there's a good message in here that the disciples needed to know it. The kingdom of darkness is brutal. The kingdom of darkness is brutal. And if you don't believe it, it's a kingdom of death. And we are on a battleground, not a playground. And if you don't believe it, just look in the news this week. The state of Ohio is trying to write in their state constitution the ability for children to be aborted up until the moment of birth. Ohio. The kingdom of darkness is brutal. And that is a wicked, evil addition to a state's constitution. Remember what Jesus said back in verse 11? Hey, if anyone doesn't receive you, shake off the dust of your feet. It'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that city. I'd hate to be Ohio on the day of judgment. This was Jesus' way of saying that they had to move on when they're rejected. Now listen to this. Their job was not to make converts. Their job was to be faithful, to go do what Jesus told them to do. They would do their part, and then God would do his part. And the people they preached to had to make their own decisions. They weren't to change people. They were to be faithful in the message, the kingdom gospel, and God would do the work. They, they would plant, some would water, but God would give the increase. But in Christ's kingdom, winning looks weird. John actually won. The apostles, nearly all of them martyred, they won. And generations of the church persecuted and harassed and marginalized. We win in the end, amen? Because it's an upside-down kingdom that God calls us to. And at times it's hard to see it that way. Even Jesus struggled. Just jot this down in your outline, Matthew 14, 13. Matthew tells us, um, and, and Mark 2 here in a minute, that Jesus invites his disciples to go away to a, to a lonely place and get some rest. But Matthew tells us in 14, 13, that part of the reason was Jesus' need to get to into a a, a desolate place was because he had just heard of John's death. So news, so th this is why J uh, Mark puts it in here too. This is what happened. Think about it. While the disciples are out, while Jesus is shifting into second gear and actually he's finally sending out these guys he's trained for two years, he's like, wow, this is going great. He gets the news that his cousin, his forerunner, John the Baptist, has been executed. And because of that, that has an effect on Jesus. And he's like, guys, we just need to pull the plug and get, get alone for a little while and rest. We need to recharge our batteries. We need to figure out what's going on here. Jesus was truly human. And that news hurt King Jesus. So serving Jesus is a wild experience. You die, but you live. You lay down your life, but you find your life. You give your soul, and you gain something more than this world. It's an upside-down kingdom. But remember, Christ is winning for us. And he's making a way, listen, for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. Do you pray that actually not realizing there's going to be a price to his kingdom coming and his will being done? And that when the world says you lose, you've actually won. <laughs> winning in the kingdom looks really strange to this world. But on the other side, it makes a ton of sense. Here's the last thing, and I'm going to be very brief. Let the servant king serve you. Look, look at this end of this. It's amazing, really. Verse 30. Then the apostles gathered to Jesus, told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. I want you to get the historical significance of this. Jesus just gets this devastating news about his cousin, probably his best friend in the world, John the Baptist, the forerunner that Scripture prophesied about. All of it. Jesus just gets this horrible news, and on the heels of that, the guys start trickling in. And they are excited. Can you feel the tension in this reunion? Anybody? Like, Jesus is grieving. And his disciples are overjoyed. Isn't that the paradox of life? In the midst of grief, there's joy.
because the kingdom's being expanded. So they come back and they tell Jesus, you're not going to believe what happened. Let me, oh, we, we preach the kingdom gospel. Repent, believe, follow the king, right? Get, get the trash out of your life. And, 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 and you know, we, we validated that message. We cast out demons. We healed the sick just like you gave us the authority. to do. It was amazing. And, and what does Jesus say? You would, think, you would think, now if it's me, if I'm Jesus, here's what I'm saying. Fantastic. Let's do it again. Okay, you go here, you go here, you go. Let's, we're on a roll. Let's keep it going. Is that what Jesus says? Look at verse 31. Yeah. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they didn't even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in a boat by themselves. See, that doesn't make any sense. It's upside-down kingdom. And he's the upside-down king of the upside-down kingdom. Winning looks like losing. Losing looks like winning. And when things are finally going great and you got momentum, you pull the plug and you go on a sabbatical rest. <laughs> But you know what? Those Sabbath rhythms, those rest rhythms are so important. I don't know about you. I can, I can put my nose to the grindstone. I can work hard for a specific period of time. And then I got to rest. They say come apart before you come apart. <laughs> Amen. You need to come apart and be with Jesus. And here's the thing. And there's a little warning in here. You need to let. You need to allow the servant king to serve you. I say, how do I do that, Paul? <laughs> you do that by getting in his presence. And I strongly suggest that be your first action of the day. I don't know about you, the days I don't start in the presence of my king do not end very well. Right? They end the opposite <laughs> of, of what it looks like and what God wants. But all oh, those Sabbath rhythms, when I come apart to be with the Lord, those days go so much better. It was said of, uh, I'm trying to think of which great preacher it was. I think it was uh, Jonathan Edwards. Said one time, I have so much to accomplish today I need to get up three hours earlier and spend that time with Christ is that how we think that's how the upside down kingdom thinks that's not how the kingdom of this world thinks here's the reality folks we wrap it up today one day we're going to all report to King Jesus what we did the disciples did it with great joy and excitement and I wonder Will we? Will we? Debated whether to share this today, but I think I will. I had a strange dream three nights ago, and I'm not a dream person. And I think the only instructive part of this dream is maybe for me. But it, it's, it, it's apropos to this thought. Will we be excited to see Jesus. I was out dove hunting very clearly in this dream. Paul Jr. was with me and my young pastor friend that I spoke of earlier who desired to go on that mission trip, Justin, was with me. And we were dove hunting in this field. Of course, when you're dove hunting, you're looking up. And in a moment, we saw something strange and those clouds parted. And it was King Jesus. And he was coming back. And what was interesting to me was the response, not only of my friends, but of those around us. For some, there was great joy. My friend Justin was literally jumping up and down, screaming, the joy of Jesus and welcoming him. 
a guy who four years ago had a pistol and was ready to pull the trigger and end his life. God rescued him. But there were others who were looking for a place to hide. And there were others who, when they saw him, hung their head in shame. Will we be like those disciples, excited to tell him what was done in his name? Or will we be hanging our head, wondering if he's even coming for us? What might this week look like if you looked through a new lens and truly, truly saw yourself as an extension of the king in your home, at work, at school, in your community? I have a question. How would that change your thinking, number one? How would it change your speaking? And how would it change your actions? How would it change what you think, what you say, what you do? And at the same time, we, we remember that winning in the kingdom is upside down from winning in this world. You all reckon that God would help us hold his own blessings in an open hand? You know, some of God's greatest blessings make his best idols, those babies. Sometimes we love them so much they can easily take the place of God in our lives. You reckon we can hold those blessings with an open hand and not let them become idols? Because we understand that winning in the kingdom looks very different. What if we in our zeal to be Jesus to our homes, schools, and places of work allowed Jesus, the servant king, to serve us this week? What if that was our priority? And what if those clouds do split this week and we see him in those clouds? I want to ask you a question. Is your response going to be, even so, come Lord Jesus, or is your response going to be, oh no, I'm not ready? A few months ago, my best friend on this earth, Pastor Charlie Colgan, uh, 49 years old, unexpectedly died of a stroke. I'm still devastated. But a mutual friend of his and mine, we were together recently, and we both had the privilege of attending his funeral. Never been to a funeral like that before. It was all about Jesus. You hardly knew Charlie's name. You know why? Because Charlie was all about Jesus. And this mutual friend and I were talking recently. And in a moment of vulnerability and honesty, he said to me, if I died today, I'd be ashamed to stand before God with what I haven't done with that with which he's blessed me. I haven't lived for him, but Charlie did. Now, that can discourage you or it can help you find first gear. And I'm stuck somewhere in the middle of that right now, to be honest with you. These disciples were so excited to get together with Jesus. Are we? Will we be ashamed at his coming? Or will we be like in my dream, my friend Justin jumping up and down with tears welcoming the king in his return? The difference is your relationship with him. Would you stand with me? And I'm just going to pray today. And this is your response time. And I want you, there's three simple thoughts that came out of today. And I want you to deal with those thoughts between you and God. I want you to ask God to help you be an extension of Jesus. I want you to ask God to help you to understand that Losing looks like winning, and winning like losing. 
and a kingdom. Winning is weird. And I got to find a way to accept that and be at peace with it. And maybe we need to ask God to help us to unplug and let the servant king serve us. Would you pray with me? And you let the Holy Spirit speak to you because I can't tell you how that's going to work. He can do it better than me. Father, we come to you today and we just, we don't know. What a strange text today. A text of opposites. An opposite kingdom. A story of great joy and sorrow all on the same page. And then the need to step away and be served by King Jesus. And in letting him serve us, we serve him. Lord, we do not want to be ashamed at your coming. So many will. These disciples couldn't wait to get back to you and report how blessed the ministry was because they, they rode that authority right into all these villages. They preached the kingdom gospel and verified it with your works. People repented, believed, and were now following Jesus. That's what we need to do. Make us instruments of your peace, starting at home. We ask that you do this for the sake of your name. Lord, be there anyone here today who the thought of your return is frightening. May you take that fear and motivate them to run to Jesus now and repent and believe before it's too late. And we'll trust you to do what only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen.